Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is Saturday. It's our Pali Canon in English study group where we're learning the words of the Buddha through the Pali Canon translated into English. We call it the Pali Canon because that's the original language that they captured the teachings in, at least the version that we have. There's some evidence that shows that the Buddha maybe spoke in a language prior to Pali, but by the time we actually get to the source text that we all source the Buddhist teachings back to, it's in the Pali language. But today, these teachings have been translated into the English language in order to allow us to take advantage of learning in a language that we understand and that we can readily make sense of. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, whether this is the first time you've joined or if you've joined these classes in the past, we study these books. There's a series from volume two through volume 13 that have captured the teachings of the Buddha in English and organize them in such a way that we can then do deep study of them independently throughout the week, reading about 10 chapters a week, and then coming together like this in order to talk about them and discuss them. And when we say 10 chapters a week, that might sound like a lot of content for kind of the average book or the average learning material that you might be studying with. But these chapters, some of them are just kind of like a couple of paragraphs. And then there's the explanations that I've provided. And so some of them are maybe two pages or even just one page, some of them. And of course, some of them are a bit longer. But by and large, it would take somebody about an hour to actually study the 10 chapters and maybe a little bit of extra time beyond that in order to reflect and really spend some time to allow it to soak in. And students all throughout the world are studying 10 chapters a week. And this week, we're moving into volume four which is titled Exploring the Path to Enlightenment. So we've been studying chapters 1 through 10 in this book. After we start our class and we get going here, we'll actually be reading each individual chapter out loud with having volunteers, and then I'll teach what the actual content is and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. The way that we start our classes is by doing a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind and get ready for the actual studying of the Buddha's words because the more that you clear out your mind and prepare it for actual studying, then you'll find that you'll be able to retain the teachings for a longer period of time. Being able to retain the teachings for a longer period of time, you can then apply the teachings in daily life to actually experience the results of the teachings. So I'd like to welcome all of you to the class and invite you to join us for meditation 
And then if you'd like to stick around after meditation, you'll be able to learn the words of the Buddha, these first 10 chapters of volume four, and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you might have. So let's go ahead and get the body ready for meditation. Typically we do seated position in this class because it works out really well with online teaching, but you could also do standing position or even lying position if you like. Just make your lower body comfortable, your hands and arms comfortable in your lap with your upper body nice and erect. This helps to keep the mind attentive and alert. And then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Taking some nice gradual breaths. Breathing in. in out breathing in experiencing the full breath in out start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath bringing the awareness of mind to the present moment by fixating on the breath, either the sound entering the nose or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Breathing in. In out. Wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out. I'm going to do some chanting just to ease us into meditation a bit. You're welcome to join with these chants if you know them. And then after the chance, just continue to focus on the breath. Anytime you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Nap more 
short little meditation there it's like to bring yourselves out of meditation if you're doing meditation on your own you're probably doing upwards of 30 minutes or more at least working in that direction these little meditations here just to kind of top up the mind a little bit as we make our way into class and just kind of like i mentioned just to prepare the mind and help it to retain the teachings longer by ensuring that there's no clutter in the mind before you get started with studying. So today we're studying chapters 1 through 10 in volume 4. And if you've got this book, that's wonderful. You can download it. You can get a printed copy through printing it yourself or ordering it on Amazon. If you don't have a copy of this book, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and then click on the link for free books and you'll be able to download volume four and you'll be able to follow along either today or reading in the future and ensure that you can prepare for class so that you come to class with questions and thoughts and get any clarification that you like. 
We're also going to be displaying these in our class, whether you're in Zoom, on Facebook or YouTube, in the other places that we live stream to, you should be able to actually see the chapters of the book being displayed so that as a volunteer is reading, that then you'll be able to follow along with the words of the Buddha. And then you'll see that in addition to the words of the Buddha, there's an actual reference that we've developed in order to ensure you have a way to go back to the original source because these teachings that you're seeing in the book, they're extracts where the Buddha might have been talking before this, he might have been talking after this, and there's this extract just to kind of focus in on one particular teaching. So if you would like to see the original source text, you can use this reference to go back and actually reference it. Then as part of each chapter, there's an explanation that I've provided to help you understand what the Buddha's teachings are here. His words are very clear and very straightforward, but oftentimes there's some additional meaning and different things that you need to understand in order to understand what the Buddha is actually sharing. So I've provided an explanation to each individual chapter below each part of the Buddha's words. So you'll see that when you download these books or you obtain a printed copy of them that you'll have the words of the Buddha, you'll have a reference to the original text, and you'll have an explanation as well to help guide your learning. So let's go ahead and turn the class over to the moderators and all the students that they'll guide us through the volunteers of reading these chapters. After someone reads the chapter, then I'll share some teachings related to the chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. Hello, teacher. A small amount of existence is not praiseworthy. Monks, just as even a small amount of feces is foul-smelling, so too I do not praise even a small amount of existence, even for a mere finger snap. Monks, just as even a small amount of urine is foul-smelling, a small amount of saliva is foul-smelling, a small amount of pus is foul-smelling, a small amount of blood is foul-smelling, so too I do not praise even a small amount of existence, even for a mere finger snap. All right. Thank you, Bossum. This first chapter in volume four, the Buddha is sharing that he doesn't praise or see it worthy or commendable or admirable to have existence in any kind of realm, including this human realm. Essentially, what he's getting to is he's talking about the cycle of rebirth because where his teachings lead to is escaping this cycle of rebirth. What enlightenment is, is the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's eliminated all discontentedness. And then in doing so, once a being has attained enlightenment, they'll experience the rest of this life with this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy for the rest of this life. And then once they die, the Buddha left what happens next as an undeclared teaching. But he did declare that once someone attains enlightenment and dies, they will no longer be reborn. We know that there is no longer any rebirth in the cycle of rebirth, so there is no further existence in the cycle of rebirth. But he didn't share whether there is or there isn't an afterlife after someone attains enlightenment and dies. So here, what he's essentially saying is that this practice, this path to enlightenment that leads to the elimination of discontentedness, it also leads to the elimination of existence in the cycle of rebirth. 
this is really key to understand and there's other teachings that he shares besides this to help you understand that but it's really key to understand because there's some places that you might have heard that the goal of this path is to be reborn and they might share that the goal is to come back to be reborn multiple times again and again and to help as many people as possible to attain enlightenment and the goal that people share is that their goal is not to attain enlightenment but instead to help others attain enlightenment and keep coming back as many times as possible in order for that to occur but when you study the words of the buddha you can see that that's not true even though people might say that that particular aspect of teaching and what they understand is buddhism it's actually not what the buddha taught and you can see that clearly here and you can see it in other parts of his teachings as well where he didn't teach that once we attain enlightenment we're going to come back into existence or he also didn't teach that one should aspire for rebirth that's not what's going to lead to the ultimate solution of solving this problem the ultimate problem that unenlightened beings have is yes there's a discontentedness in the mind which is because of craving anger and ignorance or this unknowing of true reality these 10 fetters this pollution of mind is what's causing the discontentedness and continuous challenges in the mind but the larger problem that all unenlightened beings are experiencing is this cycle of rebirth that we just keep going through being reborn over and over and over and over again we're roaming and we're wandering through this cycle of rebirth countless times hindered and struggling and having difficulties because of our ignorance or this unknowing of true reality this lack of wisdom so by gaining the wisdom of the buddhist teachings we train the mind to move beyond this discontentedness to eliminate this discontentedness and having done so the mind will be peaceful calm serene and content with joy but we will have also solved not only that problem but this bigger larger problem of continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth and you can see that clearly here where the buddha is saying that he doesn't praise existence even for a mere finger snap so even for the length of time of a snap of a finger he doesn't see it praiseworthy or admirable or commendable that one would be continually reborn so let's see what questions you guys have about this chapter let's go to Manan. hello teacher david um would you please help uh, describe what the bodhisattva and the importance of the bodhisattva is I don't really know much about the Bodhisattva because it's not part of this tradition of teachings. The Theravada Buddhist teachings, Theravada means teachings of the elders. And what people consider the Theravada teachings to be is the form of Buddhism that existed closest to the lifetime of the Buddha. We use the Pali Canon as our source text and we aren't interested in modifying or changing the Buddhist teachings because it's a Buddha that actually awakens, discovering and declaring the path to enlightenment. And then everyone else learns from the Buddhist teachings in order to awaken their mind. So in the Theravada tradition, we study the words of the Buddha and we look at him as being the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path to enlightenment. And we're not interested in making modifications. This 
bodhisattva perspective that you'll hear in other traditions of Buddhist teachings is something that came after the Buddha's death and something that people changed. And I know very little about it, but what I do know about it is the goal of that approach is that an individual takes a vow and in this vow, they kind of agree that they're not going to attain enlightenment until everyone else attains enlightenment. And once everyone else attains enlightenment, they will then decide to attain enlightenment. And their goal is to keep coming back and being reborn over and over and over again and helping everyone else to attain enlightenment. But this is not true. It's not true reality. Because how could you ever help somebody else attain enlightenment if you haven't attained enlightenment yourself? It's kind of like how could you teach someone to drive a car if you've never driven a car yourself? Or if you were interested in learning how to drive a car, would you hire someone that has driven a car and done that for 15, 20 years and has been certified as a teacher to actually drive a car and teach how to drive a car? Or would you go to someone who's never driven a car before? So from that perspective, you can see that this thinking falls apart. From the other perspective is, is that if everybody takes a vow that they're not going to attain enlightenment, until somebody else attains enlightenment, then that means the entire world is sitting around waiting for everyone else to attain enlightenment. And now everybody in the world is waiting. Who's going to get enlightened first in order to kind of ensure that everybody can get enlightenment? So when you start looking at how this is put together and you look at the original words of the Buddha of what he actually taught, you can see that the Bodhisattva perspective and the way that that's being taught is not the true teachings that the Buddha taught. It's not part of the path to enlightenment. But the challenge is, is because of impermanence and constant change from the death of the Buddha until now, 2,500 years of impermanence, people have gradually, slowly change the teachings to kind of meet certain perspectives. And then they kind of call it Buddhism, but it gets lost and people get lost on this path because they might believe that this is the path when it's really not. And this is why it's really important to base your practice on the original source text of the Buddha so that you can see the words of the Buddha and what he actually taught. And then you can learn, reflect and practice that as you do, you see the observations of how the condition of your mind and the condition of your life is improving because when you're learning and reflecting and practicing the actual words of the Buddha, they work to improve the condition of the mind and discontentedness gradually extinguishes. But if you weren't learning, reflecting and practicing the words of the Buddha, you're not going to see that progress in the condition of the mind. So here, what I feel is really important and also what the Theravada tradition feels is important is not to believe the teachings. Don't have any belief. Don't be interested in coming back and being constantly reborn, but instead learn, reflect and practice through determination, dedication and diligence. And as you do, you'll train the mind, you'll eradicate the pollution of mind and you'll observe for yourself that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. And this is how people knew that the Buddha was in fact a Buddha during his lifetime because he delivered teachings. And as he delivered teachings, people learned those, reflected and practiced, and they could see the condition of their mind was improving. They didn't believe that he was a Buddha. 
they knew with 100% certainty that their mind was angry and frustrated and had guilt and shame and fear and boredom and loneliness and shyness, all these other discontent feelings. And when they learned from this gentleman, they reflected on his teachings and they practiced, they could see the condition of their mind gradually improving. And that's how they knew that, aha, this gentleman is an actual Buddha because he attained enlightenment by himself without any help. He declared teachings during his lifetime, dedicated the rest of his life to helping as many people as possible to attain enlightenment. And during his lifetime, countless people did attain enlightenment. And then after his death, his teachings were left behind in such a way that countless more people could attain enlightenment. So it's only a Buddhist teachings that would actually guide individuals to enlightenment. If we modify or change or we introduce these other things that you might see in the world, these are going to be very detrimental to anybody who chooses to change and modify the teachings and anyone who chooses to learn and practice those modified teachings. It's going to cause harm and challenges because they're not actually learning and practicing the true teachings of the path to enlightenment as declared by a Buddha. So I'm sorry that I don't know a whole, whole lot about that, but it's just because it's not part of what the Buddha actually taught when all. Okay, um, thank you, teacher David. You're welcome. Well, so it's clear that existing in the lower realms is really painful. So here the Buddha is motivating practitioners to do the work to escape having rebirth in the lower realms and maybe having rebirth in the hidden realm. The Buddha didn't encourage rebirth anywhere at all. So even though you'll see in the Buddhist teachings where he talks about rebirth in the lower realms and he even talks about rebirth in heaven, he talks about rebirth into the human realm as well. Even though you'll see him talk about this and you'll see him teaching that, it's actually not the ultimate goal of this path. If you can imagine learning and starting to progress on this path, well, okay, you know, a Buddha is going to teach what it takes to get to enlightenment and explaining very clearly what enlightenment is and how to get there. But even in studying with an actual Buddha, not everybody is going to attain enlightenment, even when studying with an actual Buddha. And it doesn't have anything to do with studying with an actual Buddha. It has to do with the application of the teachings, the condition of the person's mind before actually starting to learn. It's a matter of how much dedication and diligence someone applies to the path. So not everyone's going to attain enlightenment, even when studying with the Buddha. So one of the questions that often comes up is, okay, teacher, or okay, Mr. Buddha, if I learn with you and I practice with you and I progress on this path, but I don't attain enlightenment, what happens? And that's part of the Buddhist teachings is helping you to understand what would happen if you don't attain enlightenment this life, but you do learn and practice, what is going to be the result of that? So you'll find in this book series, you'll find in the original source text of the Pali Canon, teachings describing rebirth and how rebirth occurs into these various realms. But always keep in mind that the ultimate goal of this path is to not experience rebirth, but instead is to apply dedication and diligence to learning and practicing in this life so that you can extinguish discontentedness, completely eliminate from the mind any discontentedness, experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. But should you not experience that in this life, 
you will still experience a gradual improvement to the condition of the mind, but you just ultimately may not get to enlightenment. And should that not occur, then in your next rebirth, it's going to be an improved rebirth and potentially either in this human realm or in the heavenly realm. But these realms are not permanent, including heaven. It's not a permanent place to exist. Those beings are still in the cycle of rebirth, can continue to be reborn and may even fall down to the lower realms. So the wise practitioner would apply effort and energy in this life to learn, reflect and practice to escape and eliminate the cycle of rebirth, which includes the elimination of discontentedness. Thanks, teacher. No more question. All right. So moving on to chapter two. Let's go to Miranda. One who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Monks. One who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Consciousness monks, while standing, might stand engaged in form, based upon form, established upon form. With a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with feeling, based upon feeling, established upon feeling. With a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with perception based upon perception, established upon perception, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase in expansion. Or consciousness while standing might stand engaged with volitional formations, choices and decisions, based upon volitional formations, established upon volitional formations, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase in expansion. Monks, though someone might say, separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, I will make known the coming and going of consciousness, it's passing away and rebirth. Its growth, increase, and expansion is impossible. Monks, if a monk has abandoned desire for the form aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned desire for the feeling aggregate, for the perception aggregate, for the volitional formation aggregate, for the consciousness aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, the mind is liberated. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nirvana. One understands, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this gives us a further explanation of what we were just talking about, but it dives into more detail. Here, when you see the word engaged, you should think of craving desire attachment. That's what the Buddha is talking about here. So when he says monks, one who is engaged is unliberated. What he's saying is one who has craving desire attachment is unliberated, meaning the mind is not free. It's not free of these strong feelings. It still has discontentedness. One who is disengaged, or in other words, one who is practicing non-craving, 
non-desire, non-attachment is liberated. The mind is free. It no longer experiences discontentedness. So you might need to replace that through this chapter in order to help you understand it a bit better. Then he goes on and he says, consciousness, monks, while standing, what consciousness is, is the mind. So the mind while standing might stand craving with form. Form is what you see with the eyes. Or actually here we're talking about the five aggregates. So what he's talking about in this form is he's talking about the physical body, right? So it might stand craving and holding on to this physical body. Based upon form, established upon form, with a sprinkling of excitement. Whenever you see excitement, what you should think is pleasant feeling. Even though he's talking about excitement, he's using that. What he's indicating is he's indicating pleasant feelings, which is happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all of these pleasant feelings that arise in the mind based on craving, desire, attachment. It's part of a discontent mind. It might come to growth, increase, and expand. So what he's essentially saying is based on craving, desire, attachment, if we have craving, desire, attachment for this physical body, then we might actually experience excitement and it might grow, it might increase, and it might expand. So this is discontentedness, an uncommon mind. The mind is shaken up when it's experiencing those pleasant feelings. It can't be in the middle if it's on one side experiencing these pleasant feelings. And then conversely, if it's on the other side, which is painful feelings, it's also shaken up there too with sadness, anger, frustration, and other forms of painful feelings. So the goal of this path is to bring the mind to the middle, eradicating craving, desire, attachment, so it can be free or it can be liberated from these strong feelings. So that's what he's pointing to here. And he says that with form. He also says this with feelings. That's the next paragraph. He then talks about it and based on perceptions. Then he talks about it as volitional formations or choices and decisions. So these are the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. And once a being fully purifies the mind, eradicating pollution of mind, then the mind is actually enlightened. And part of that is not clinging or not holding on to these five aggregates, this existence. So back in that previous chapter where he says he doesn't praise existence even for a finger snap, what he's sharing there in this teaching and others as well, as you learn more about his teachings, is not to cling and crave these five aggregates. Because as you do, it's going to cause discontentedness in the mind. If you crave or you cling to this physical body, when you experience impermanence because of the aging process, then you're going to be craving and clinging to the physical body and its youthfulness. And now you're going to cause yourself discontentedness because you're going to be discontent that the body's aging when you're holding on to this youthfulness. Or if you have certain feelings that arise in the mind and you cling and you crave those certain feelings, then you're going to experience discontentedness or certain perceptions. Perceptions are your opinions and views of the way things seem to be. 
They could be misperceptions. And if you cling and hold on to your misperceptions, then you're going to be making decisions based on false information, which is going to lead to unwholesome results. So what a wise practitioner would do is not cling and hold on to your perceptions and your maybe false beliefs, your false opinions, your false views, but instead always seek the truth, asking questions in order to get to the actual truth so that you're not clinging to your perceptions. Same thing if you're clinging to volitional formations or your choices and decisions. If there are certain choices and decisions that you're looking to make and you cling and hold on to those, it's going to cause discontentedness in the mind. And same thing is if you hold on to the consciousness or the mind itself, it's going to lead to discontentedness. So you need to understand the five aggregates and make sure that you don't cling or hold on to them because it's only going to cause discontentedness. This next paragraph, the Buddha says, monks, though someone might say separated from form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. These are the five aggregates that it's passing away in rebirth its growth increase and expansion is impossible so here what the buddha is saying is just separating the mind from form feeling perception volitional formations and consciousness it's not going to lead to the elimination of discontentedness it's not going to lead to the elimination of rebirth because separating from a certain object is the first step to eliminate craving or clinging, but it doesn't actually eliminate the craving or clinging. So for example, say I was craving or clinging something like alcohol, and I was always drinking and ingesting alcohol. Just stopping to drink alcohol is the first step to eliminate any kind of craving or clinging to the alcohol. But just separating oneself from the alcohol or the drugs or whatever it is that one's ingesting doesn't actually eliminate the craving desire attachment because the craving desire attachment isn't the object of the alcohol what the craving desire attachment or the clinging is it's in the mind it's a mental longing with a strong eagerness so in order to eliminate this cycle of rebirth in order to eliminate discontentedness and liberate the mind you can't just separate from certain objects. You actually have to train the mind to eliminate the mental longing with a strong eagerness. And in some situations, the first step is to separate from the actual object itself. And then something like alcohol, you need to train the mind to not crave that and gradually eliminate the mental craving, the mental clinging, that mental longing with a strong eagerness. And then ultimately you will have eliminated that clinging which will bring more clarity to the mind and it'll bring a better amount of mental clarity that you'll then be able to use in your life with other things that aren't unwholesome something like maybe like chocolate cake or maybe there's something else maybe you're clinging to your phone or you're craving your mobile phone and you're always on your phone you may need to go through a period of time where you separate yourself for elongated periods of time from your phone and that's going to help, but that doesn't fully cure the craving, desire, attachment in the mind. You then have to actively work to eliminate that from the mind. And then ultimately, as you eliminate that from the mind, you 
then end up engaging with the phone and using the phone at different times, but you do it without craving, without desire, without attachment, without clinging. So there are certain things that you'll need to separate the mind from for a period of time, but then you'll end up going back to and start using at different times. And that's okay because it's not going to lead to unwholesome results. But then there's other things like alcohol and drugs and things like this that you need to separate from. You need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, and then you'll never go back to it again. So this paragraph here, the Buddha saying is just separating yourself from these five aggregates isn't going to lead to the elimination of discontentedness and the elimination of the cycle of rebirth. And here he says, monks, if a monk has abandoned the desire for form aggregate with the abandon of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned desire for feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, the mind is liberated. So here he's clarifying and helping you see that it's not just separating from these things. It's not the object itself that is the craving, desire, attachment. It's in the mind. It's this mental longing and strong eagerness. And cutting that off and letting it go is part of what we do when we train in meditation and then training in daily life the same way. That's how you ultimately eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And that's how you get to this liberated mind where it's free of these strong feelings. And then here he gives a little bit of a synopsis of what it's like to attain enlightenment. So by being liberated, the mind is steady, right? It's steady. It's stable. It's unshakable. By being steady, the mind is content, right? It's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, right? By being content, one is not agitated. So agitation is part of discontentedness, right? Frustration, irritation, annoyance, agitation. So being content with the mind being content, it's liberated from discontentedness. It's liberated from craving, desire, attachment. One is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains Nibbana or enlightenment. That's what Nibbana means. And now this connects to the chapter that we were studying previously. So having attained enlightenment, right? One understands destroyed his birth, meaning there's no longer any rebirth. Once someone attains enlightenment, destroyed his birth. This is the ultimate goal of the Buddhist teachings is to eliminate discontentedness and no longer experience rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. That's why he says here, the holy life has been lived. So in other words, you've learned, reflected, and practiced, and now you've lived this very wholesome life. What had to be done has been done. What you have to do in order to get to this enlightened mental state is eliminate pollution of mind. So what had to be done has been done because the mind is enlightened. So it's been cleared out. All the conditions that are causing the unenlightened state have been eliminated. Now the mind is unconditioned, experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, the enlightened mental state. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. So there's no more existence 
in the cycle of rebirth. That's what he's sharing is the goal of his teachings. That's the path to enlightenment. So when you hear somebody teach that the goal is to come back and be reborn multiple times, if you understand the words of the Buddha and what he actually taught, you can see that that's not what he taught, that his path leads to the ending of discontentedness where the mind is enlightened, experiencing that steady, content, non-agitated or unagitated mental state is enlightenment. And having done so, one will no longer be reborn in the cycle of rebirth and not experience existence any longer in the cycle of rebirth. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Mariana has a question. Let's go to her. Uh, yes, I was focusing on the word agitated here. Uh, could I interpret the word agitated to mean, um, or in this uh, phrase, in this line here, by being content, one is not agitated. Could this also be interpreted further to include um, elimination of craving? Uh, is that equivalent to this not being agitated? In order to get to the point where the mind isn't agitated, you would have to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So that's what he's talking about back here, where he's saying abandoning desire, right? This is abandoning craving and desire for the form aggregate and everything else too, not just these five aggregates, but you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment for all things. That's the mental longing and strong eagerness. So you'll still have a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, children, a car, a house. You know, if you're a household practitioner, you still have these things, but you just have to train the mind to not have this mental longing, strong eagerness, craving permanence. And having done so, that's where one then has a liberated mind. The mind is steady, content, and not agitated. So you can insert into that agitated. You could insert into one is not frustrated, one is not irritated, one is not feeling guilt or shame or fear, one is not bored or lonely, one is not sad, one is not angry. You can insert any discontent feeling into that that you'd like. He's using agitated here, but you could really insert any discontent feeling into there that you'd like. Because once you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, you're no longer going to experience any discontentedness because the mind is content. Okay, so from my understanding, the word agitated is more a reference to the state of the mind and not specifically craving and a, a longing. Exactly, correct. So it's the discontent feelings. So another way to say this is by being content, one is no longer going to experience discontent feelings. You know, being no longer experiencing discontent feelings, one personally attains Nibbana. But in order to get to that elimination of discontent feelings, there has to be the extinguishing and elimination of craving, desire, attachment. Thank you. And also uh, follow up was if the word agitated can be interchanged with excitement, would that also be applied here? Exactly. There's no longer these conditioned feelings where a pleasant feeling like excitement is going to arise. The mind's still going to have joy. It's still going to enjoy life. It's going to enjoy life much more when it's enlightened, but it's no longer going to base its inner feelings 
on these conditioned experiences because what craving desire attachment is doing is saying, I want this new pair of shoes in order to feel excited. And if I get these new pair of shoes, I'm going to feel excited. And if I don't get these new pair of shoes, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be agitated. I'm conditioning my inner feelings on this craving desire attachment of getting the shoes. But one who's attained enlightenment no longer has those craving desire attachments. They're going to still have the pair of shoes, the object of the shoes, but they're just not going to have the longing and strong eagerness. So if they go to the store and the store doesn't have the shoes in stock that they would like to get, an enlightened being is going to be like, all right, no big deal. One of the shoes is going to be in. I'll come back and get them. Or is there another shoe store that I can get those from? I'll just go get them from another store. An unenlightened being is going to be angry or going to be sad or frustrated or irritated or agitated when that store doesn't have the shoes because of this craving, because of this longing, this mental longing, the mind's craving permanence, and it's uncomfortable. It's discontent with the fact that it's met with impermanence because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand impermanence. The mind is longing with a strong eagerness for these pleasant feelings to get those shoes. And when it meets with impermanence, it doesn't understand it. It doesn't like it. And that's where the unrelated mind reacts with something like agitation or irritation or frustration or anger. So one who's eliminated that craving desire attachment is no longer going to experience those strong feelings because it's not seeking pleasant feelings and acquiring this object. This object of the new shoes is just something that they use in order to progress in the world and protect the feet. It's not seen as a mechanism for experiencing these conditioned pleasant feelings like excitement. Thank you. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right. So on to chapter three. Yeah, let's go to an for chapter three. One dwelling with craving as a partner Venerable sir, in what way is one dwelling with a partner? There are Migdajala forms recognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk seeks excitement in them, welcomes them, and remains holding to them, excitement arises. When there is excitement, there is obsession of mind. When there is obsession of mind, there is bondage. Found by the fetter of sensual desire, Mikjala, a monk is called one dwelling with a partner. There are Mikjala, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body, mental objects recognizable by the mind that are desirable, lovable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk seeks excitement in them, he is one he is called one dwelling with a partner. Mikjala, even though a monk... Sounds like we lost you, Manal. Speaking about impermanence. <laughs> ...is his partner. He is not a... ...physical objects recognizable by the body, mental objects recognizable by the mind that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, he is called a lone dweller. 
Megajala, even though a monk who dwells thus, lives in the vicinity of a village, associating with male and female ordained practitioners, with male and female household practitioners, with kings and royal ministers, with sectarian teachers and their disciples, he is still called a lone dweller. For what reason? Because craving is his partner, and he has abandoned it. Therefore, he is called a lone dweller. Okay. Thank you, Manol. Zoom kind of uh, reset for me. Speaking of impermanence, I had to log back in. So I didn't get everything that you were reading, but anybody who has this chapter three should be able to see what we were just reading in the class. But now that I'm plugged back in, let me just share the teachings here that the Buddha is talking about. Is He's talking about this person dwelling with a partner versus someone who's a lone dweller. And this partner that he's talking about is craving, desire, attachment. And he's saying if the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, that's the partner that they're dwelling with. The mind's going to experience certain forms through the eyes, certain sounds through the ear, certain odors through the nose, certain flavors in the tongue, certain physical objects coming in contact with the physical body, and certain mental objects in the mind. These are the six sense bases. And as long as there's craving, desire, attachment through these six sense bases, then there's going to be this arising. Here he's talking about excitement, the pleasant feelings. But we also know there's going to be painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But here he just happens to be honing in on the pleasant side because that's what the mind is chasing after. The unenlightened mind is chasing these pleasant feelings. And if the mind obtains the objects of its affection, this obsession of mind that he's talking about, then it's going to experience these pleasant feelings. But if the mind doesn't experience the obtaining of these objects of its affection, it's going to experience these painful feelings or these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So if you ever think about how the mind can be obsessed, right? If you've ever been interested in buying a new pair of shoes, but it wasn't just an interest in a new pair of shoes. It was almost like this obsession that you had with this new pair of shoes, or you had this obsession with this boyfriend or girlfriend, or you have this obsession about a new car where you just kind of ruminate over this, even maybe even have a difficulty sleeping at night, or maybe it's the first thing you think about when you wake up of obtaining this object of the mind's affection. And the mind thinks that if I just get that object of my affection, everything will be perfect. And you maybe acquire that object and you feel these temporary pleasant feelings of excitement or thrill, euphoria, but then they fade away. And now the mind's chasing after the next obsession of mind. And the Buddha's saying, you know, when the mind's obsessed, there's this bondage, right? This is the mind is fettered, it's tainted, it's polluted, it's not liberated, it's bound in this cycle of rebirth. And he's saying, because of this fetter of central desire, the mind is bound, it's unliberated. And this is one of the major fetters that the mind experiences and that's causing this constant discontentedness is this craving through the six sense bases. And the Buddha is saying this is someone who's dwelling with a partner, that that craving, desire, attachment is the partner. And then he goes on to explain someone who has abandoned craving, desire, attachment. Because craving is his partner and he has not abandoned it, therefore he is called one dwelling with a partner, right? And then he goes into saying, okay, let's 
eliminate this craving desire attachment and having done so one is a lone dweller one is not dwelling with this partner any longer so when there is no excitement there is no obsession of mind right and there's no bondage in the mind and this is what he's getting to here at the end where he's basically sharing with his students that it's important to eliminate the craving desire attachment and having abandoned it one is then called a lone dweller so let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter let's go to Miranda for facebook questions yes amina has a question on facebook question about perception when the mind is unsteady and easily bothered what is the antidote in the moment for example there is someone who illegally dumps their garbage in front of where we live usually i try to clean it but today the mind was attached to controlling how others behave and this is unwholesome would like to be able to let go and have a steady mind what is the guidance in a small episode like this yeah so it's all the same things amina it's craving desire attachment that's producing the discontentedness in that situation and there's no instant pill right there's no instant fix that's not the way the buddhist teachings work it's a gradual training of the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation through practicing generosity that gradually trains the mind to eliminate craving desire attachment then when you've got that underway on a long-term basis then when you're aware that the mind becomes discontent because of a certain craving like today you observe whoa the mind's craving for this garbage to be disposed of in a certain way and yeah there's some agitation there's some irritation there based on this craving that exists in the mind so obviously keeping with the breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity but then actively train the mind to separate from craving things to be a certain way separate from it and then actively eliminate it from the mind that you need to understand that not everyone's going to function in the world the way that you want them to function and it's not your job to go around and convince people to do things in a certain way that's not what you're looking after that's not what your goal is what your goal is is to train the mind that if someone puts the garbage in the appropriate spot great that's fine but if someone doesn't then that's their decision that's their unwholesome decision and now they're going to experience the results of that and if you need to make some wise decisions as part of it if it's affecting you then you can do that but allowing the mind to get shaken up because of somebody else's decision of not disposing trash properly is one's own craving desire attachment and you've got to find a way to let that go and ensure that you're not craving for things to be a certain way but in the moment when you're discontent you've got to cut it off and let it go you've got to cut off and just realize that's your own craving and just let it go but that's sometimes easier said than done depending on how significant the craving is so that's why breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is that generalized training that you work towards to make it easier for you to cut off and let go as the mind is longing for things to be a certain way and you observe that in the moment that's where you apply right effort and you cut that off let it go and take the mind in the opposite direction and just train the mind that it's not going to get the objects of its affection it's not possible for the mind to permanently get the objects of its affection and the best thing you can do is train the mind to let it go 
no more questions. All right. So chapter four. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is Miranda. Holy life is lived for the abandoning of existence. This world is burning. Armed by contact, it calls disease itself. By whatever means it understands anything, it becomes otherwise than that. Becoming otherwise, the world is attached to becoming harmed by existence, and yet has excitement in that very existence. Where there's excitement, there's fear. What one fears is stressful. This holy life is lived the abandoning of existence. Whatever Exorbrahmans say that liberation from existence is by means of existence, all of them are not released from existence, I say. And whatever ascetics and Brahmins say that escape from existence is by means of non-existence, all of them have not escaped from existence, I say. For this stress comes into play in dependence on every gain of material possession. With the ending of every craving and desire, there's no stress coming into play. Look at this world, beings afflicted with thick ignorance, unknowing true reality are unreleased from passion for what has come to be. All levels of existence, anywhere, in any way, are impermanent, stressful, and subject to change. Seeing this as it's come to be, with bright wisdom, one abandons craving for existence and doesn't have excitement in non-existence. From the total ending of craving comes fading and elimination without remainder, liberation, enlightenment. For the monk who is liberated through lack of craving and desire, there's no further existence. He has conquered Mara, won the battle, having gone beyond existences, such. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this is combining a few things that we've been discussing so far. This particular teaching came about after the Buddha went away and he meditated for seven continuous days. He emerged from this meditation and basically declared the world is burning, right? The world's on fire. That the unenlightened beings has this disease of the self, this personal existence view, this first fetter as part of the 10 fetters. He's saying this is a disease, having this personal existence view or this self, that it's causing this massive amount of discontentedness in the world, and the world is essentially burning. You can think about the three fires here, craving, anger and ignorance of the unknowing of true reality we call those the three poisons the three unwholesome roots but we also call them the three fires and depending on how you're talking about things you might use the different ways of referencing them the three poisons we talk about antidotes what are the antidotes or the three unwholesome roots we talk about what are the wholesome roots to remedy these or with the three fires we talk about what is it to extinguish these three fires. So the Buddha sometimes uses different analogies depending on how he's referencing craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality. He also starts saying, you know, here that the world is attached and being harmed by existence, that existing in the cycle of rebirth, we continue to experience this discontentedness and this harm over and over again, but yet we find excitement in this very existence. So the mind is craving and clinging to existence, but yet people talk about how miserable it is to exist in the world, right? But yet people want to exist, so they keep existing over and over and over again in this cycle of rebirth. 
And the Buddha is saying, okay, if we allow this craving for existence to arise, this excitement, then as long as there's this craving, desire, attachment, yes, there's excitement, but there's also going to be fear. So you have to see both sides of the equation here. Oftentimes, the unenlightened mind just sees the pleasant feelings and chases after the pleasant feelings, the excitement. But it doesn't realize that by chasing after the pleasant feelings, you're inviting in the painful feelings like fear and like stress and anger and guilt and shame and all these other discontent feelings. So now the Buddha goes on and saying, okay, this holy life has been lived for the abandoning of existence. Once again, making it clear that the goal is to attain enlightenment, get to this content mind and abandon existence, eliminating this whole rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. And then as part of what he was teaching, there were other communities, aesthetics and Brahmin, who were teaching different things, very different than what the Buddha was teaching. So he was kind of like that outlier, right? He was like the black sheep that was teaching something very different than what others were teaching at the time of his life, where people have been kind of led to believe one thing or another. Here he comes with all this truth, helping people to observe the truth through their own independent verification of his teachings and see the truth that those teachings lead to the elimination of discontentedness. The mind can be liberated from discontentedness. But there were people during the lifetime of the Buddha, as there are now, saying that in order to escape existence, you need to actually exist in order to escape existence. This is kind of what we were just talking about with this bodhisattva idea. Like, how can you escape the cycle of rebirth if you're in existence? You can't do that. It doesn't work. So the Buddha is saying here, whatever aesthetics or Brahmins say that liberation, that enlightenment, or this freedom from existence is by means of existence, by existing in this world, you're going to eliminate existence in this world. All of them are not released from existence. So he's saying, you know, that's not the truth. And whatever aesthetics or Brahmins say that escape from existence is by means of non-existence, they also have an escaped existence. So the Buddha didn't teach that once you attain enlightenment, that you're no longer going to exist anywhere. That's an undeclared teaching. But he did say that there's no longer any rebirth. So oftentimes people confuse this and they think that by attaining enlightenment that they've extinguished existence. And yes, you're no longer existing in the cycle of rebirth. But the Buddha never taught what comes next after enlightenment. And that's part of what he's saying here. But he says it more clearly in other parts of his teachings. So he's not saying that we should exist and we should aspire for existence. But he's also saying that you shouldn't crave and cling to non-existence. Because if you crave non-existence, then the mind's not liberated. That's what he's saying here. So you can't crave existence and you can't crave non-existence because they're still craving in the mind. Therefore, it's still going to experience discontentedness and continued existence. And then he goes on with some more talking here about ending craving and desire. He talks about beings being afflicted with this thick ignorance or unknowing of true reality. This is essentially the main component that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. Craving, desire, attachment is what's causing discontentedness. But it's ignorance, 
of that craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentedness that the mind keeps experiencing discontentedness and it keeps experiencing continuous rebirth. If we didn't have this ignorance, if we had wisdom to understand that we're causing our own discontentedness because of craving, desire, attachment, then we would take wise steps in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, in order to eliminate discontentedness. But because the unenlightened mind has this thick ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, unenlightened mind is going to go around and blame other people. I'm angry because of you, or I'm frustrated because of this. You're causing it. People will oftentimes blame others or blame the situation. They're not practicing right view. They're not fully established in right view because of this thick ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. But when we eliminate this ignorance through wisdom, learning and practicing and verifying the teachings of the Buddha, then we understand, aha, we have the wisdom. We know it's craving, desire, attachment, our own craving, desire, attachment that is causing the discontentedness. Therefore, let's eliminate that in order to eliminate the discontentedness. It's not other people that are causing us to be angry. It's our own craving, desire, attachments, not getting the objects of our affection. The mind is obsessed with certain objects. And as long as that's allowed to exist in the mind, it's going to continue to experience discontentedness and continue to experience existence in the cycle of rebirth. So seeing this, understanding craving, desire, attachment is the problem with right wisdom, being able to see that one abandons craving for existence and does not excite in non-existence. So it doesn't take pleasure because if there's excitement in non-existence, then that means there's still craving, desire, attachment there. The mind is not in the middle. From the total ending of craving comes fading and elimination without remainder, liberation. So here he's explaining craving, desire, attachment eliminated from the mind is going to lead to freedom of strong feelings. It's going to lead to liberation of mind. It's going to lead to enlightenment. For the monk who is liberated through lack of craving desire, there's no further existence. He's making it very clear here that someone who's eliminated craving desire attachment is no longer going to experience this continuous existence in the cycle of rebirth. He discusses in other teachings that craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. When that fuel has been extinguished, there's no longer any rebirth. So if you think about the logs in a fire, that once that fire is extinguished, if there's a spark that comes out of that fire and it lands somewhere else, it's going to ignite a new fire. That's essentially what craving desire attachment is, is if you get to the end of this life and there's this spark of craving desire attachment, if there's this longing with a strong eagerness at the end of this life, that's the spark that then gets carried by the wind and now it ends up igniting a new fire. And the idea is, is that if you extinguish the craving desire attachment in this life, then there won't be any more sparks that are going to ignite the next life. And you can end the misery and the despair and the displeasure in this life. And you'll know that you're doing that because you'll see a gradual 
diminishing of discontentedness in this life as you train the mind more and more. And it's just a matter of doing that more and more. So back to, you know, Amina's question is, you know, when you observe these arising of discontentedness, just continue to stay dedicated to your practice, cutting off that discontentedness, cutting off that craving, eliminating the desire, and then more and more the mind's discontentedness will diminish. And then you just need a more and more time frame to really soak these teachings into the mind, eradicate these pollutions of the 10 fetters. And then having done so, the mind will experience this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy more and more for longer and longer periods of time. And then when you go one year, two year, three years without any discontentedness, then you'll know that the mind is enlightened and there's no further existence. There's no further discontentedness in this life, but there's not going to be a next life to experience more discontentedness. All of that is done and over with. And then lastly, he talks about here that one who's attained enlightenment has conquered Mara. This is that evil being who motivates unskillful conduct and is looking to create harm and havoc in the world. This being is the being that kind of oversees the realm of hell and the realm of afflicted spirits and is always trying to influence the mind of unenlightened beings to do harmful things. It's still the being who is making the decision to do those harmful things, but Mara is going to be there and try to entice somebody in order to do those harmful things. But once somebody's attained enlightenment, they've conquered Mara, they've won the battle, right? Having gone beyond existences, no longer experiencing existence in the cycle of rebirth. And then the Buddha just finishes it with, you know, such is the way that it is. This is just the way that it is. He's not making apologies. He's not trying to ask somebody to believe him. He's not trying to convince somebody through forceful means. He's just saying, here's the truth. And then if somebody would like to independently confirm that through their own verification, then all of his teachings in his path helps us and guides us to independently verify these teachings that what he's saying is 100% the truth. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. All right. So now we go to chapter five. The Nick is volunteer is Manal. With destruction of excitement and craving comes destruction of discontentedness. Monks, a monk sees as impermanent the I, which is actually impermanent. That is his right view. Seeing rightly, he experiences a fading away of strong feelings. With the destruction of excitement comes destruct destruction of craving. With the destruction of craving comes destruction of excitement. With the destruction of excitement and craving, the mind is said to be well liberated. Monks, a monk sees as impermanent the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, which is actually impermanent. Seeing rightly, he experiences a fading away of strong feelings. With the destruction of excitement and craving, the mind is said to be well liberated. The Buddha repeats the entire statement of the rest, internal sense basis of the ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, and the six external sense spaces of form, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects. All right. Thank you, Manal. So here, this is where the Buddha is saying, cut off and let go of those 
condition pleasant feelings. He's talking about excitement, but you can put happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, any of these conditioned feelings that when there's craving, desire, attachment, it's going to arise these pleasant feelings. The mind is craving these pleasant feelings. And what he's saying is destroy that. Let go of the excitement. Let go of those pleasant feelings. And that's how you destroy craving. Now, in other parts of his teachings, he talks about breathing mindfulness meditation and other parts of this path. But this is in the moment. So to Amina's question, if you're looking to get rid of the painful feelings when somebody isn't putting the trash in the right location, when you see somebody putting the trash in the right location, you can't allow the mind to become excited and thrilled or having happiness because you see somebody putting the garbage away in the right location. If you allow the mind to arise pleasant feelings based on this condition, it's only a matter of time before painful feelings arise because that condition can't be met permanently. The condition of people putting their trash in the right place it can't be met permanently because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if you allow this conditioned feeling, conditioned on people putting trash away in the right location to arise pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time that you're inviting in these painful feelings to come later. So the Buddha is explaining here the way to get rid of painful feelings and get rid of craving, desire, attachment is to let go of this excitement that's coming about. And the mind is going to have this craving through the six sense bases. So in Amina's question, the eyes are looking for this form of seeing this person put the trash in the right location. And the Buddha is saying that's impermanent. That can't happen permanently. So not expecting and craving for this to happen permanently, then the mind won't arise this excitement and therefore it won't arise these painful feelings either. So when the destruction of excitement and craving, the mind is said to be well liberated, that you can be content. If somebody puts the trash in the right spot, fine, peaceful and content. That's nice to see. Someone doesn't put the trash in the right spot. Okay, I understand. This is impermanent. We can't expect and crave for this to happen permanently. Otherwise, the mind's going to cause itself this discontentedness. So what questions do you guys have here? No question at this time, teacher. All right. Moving on to chapter six. With the elimination of excitement comes the complete destruction of discontentedness. Puna, there are forms recognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting, if a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding to them, excitement is, is eliminated in him. With the elimination of excitement, Puna, there is the elimination of discontentedness, I say. There are Puna sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, <clears throat> physical objects, recognizable by the body, mental objects, recognizable by the mind, that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding to them, excitement is eliminated in him. With the elimination of excitement, Puna, there is the elimination of discontentedness, I say. 
All right. This is what we were just talking about, that in order to eliminate discontentedness, we need to eliminate these conditioned pleasant feelings. As long as the mind is longing with this strong eagerness for these desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, centrally enticing and tempting experiences through the eye, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact and the mind, those six sense bases, as long as we welcome those pleasant feelings into the mind and remain holding on to them, then the mind's going to keep experiencing these conditioned pleasant feelings, these conditioned painful feelings, and these conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the way to eliminate the discontentedness is to eliminate the mind welcoming and holding on to these pleasant feelings. So in Amina's case, like I mentioned, when you see somebody that is putting away the trash in the right location, that's desirable, that's lovely, that's agreeable, that's pleasing, that's centrally enticing and tempting to allow the mind to be like, oh, wow, look, someone's putting the trash away in the right location. You can't do that because as you do, the very next person, that condition can't be met permanently. So now the painful feelings come in. So you've got to get to the point where you understand this so well that you don't just apply it to the neighbors putting in the trash in the right location, but you apply it to all things. You know, your child cleaning their room, your child having good grades. While we aspire for these things to happen, If we crave them and we cling to them and we welcome these desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing things into the mind, when they happen the way we want, the mind experiences these pleasant feelings, but they're not permanent. Our children won't clean their room and keep it tidy permanently. They're not going to permanently get good grades necessarily. So if we cling to those things and welcome them into the mind, then it's only a matter of time before these painful feelings come in because the mind is conditioning its feelings on some impermanent condition. So the Buddha is here saying, with the elimination of excitement, another way to say that is, with the elimination of longing for these pleasant feelings, puna, there is the elimination of discontentedness. That's the whole key, observing those pleasant feelings that the mind's chasing after by not welcoming them and not clinging to them and holding on to them, then you'll avoid any painful feelings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Well, so with experiencing excitement, I'm just trying to make sure of this understanding. With experiencing excitement, the mind will actually experience two times discontentedness, being away of the middle. One when the mind experiences pleasant feelings, and it will, of course, eventually experience painful feelings after this. Yes, because if we're basing our feelings on the condition of something happening, when that thing is true and it happens, you're going to experience excitement and pleasant feelings. But that thing can't be true permanently. So because we've conditioned the mind and creating these pleasant feelings, based on this condition, when that condition no longer exists, there's going to be painful feelings as a result. It's just a matter of time. So a practitioner who's actively training to attain enlightenment and eliminate this central desire, that's what we're talking about here, is that fetter of central desire, the fourth fetter, is training the mind to no longer long with a strong eagerness through these six sense bases, wanting things to be a certain way, permanently 
Because as long as you allow the mind to continue to do that, it's only a matter of time before it experiences these painful feelings because the mind is still conditioning its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And see, the challenge for the unenlightened mind is it's been chasing after these pleasant feelings for so long. This life and all these previous lives, we've been chasing after these pleasant feelings. And when we get them, we feel all this pleasant feelings. And it kind of reinforces for the mind that that was a worthy pursuit. That yes, I chased after this thing. I got what I wanted. And now I've got these pleasant feelings. But a week later or two weeks later or a month later, when those conditions no longer exist and you experience these painful feelings, the mind doesn't have the wisdom to understand the reason why you're experiencing those painful feelings is because a month ago you were chasing the pleasant feelings or six months ago you were chasing the pleasant feelings or a year ago you were chasing those pleasant feelings on that particular issue. The mind lacks the wisdom. It has this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. So for this temporary period, whether it's a week or a month or a year, whatever it is, the mind feels kind of emboldened and it feels like it was a worthy pursuit because it got these pleasant feelings and it doesn't associate these pleasant feelings or these, it doesn't associate these painful feelings that you're getting now a week, a month or a year later to the fact that you were chasing those pleasant feelings. That's why you're experiencing these painful feelings is because we allow the mind to have this craving desire attachment for these pleasant feelings. And that's why in this series of chapters, the Buddha is really hitting home that don't chase these pleasant feelings. He's using the word excitement, but He's really talking about pleasant feelings is don't allow craving desire attachment to reside in the mind and chase after these pleasant feelings. As long as you do that, yeah, you're going to get the pleasant feelings, but they're temporary. They're only temporary. And it's only a matter of time. If you welcome those pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time before you also are inviting in these painful feelings. Thanks, teacher. Uh, yes, teacher David. Um, so I'm a little bit uh, skewed on uh, understanding uh, how excitement, where there is excitement, there is fear. Um, just going quickly back to chapter four. Um, and based off of what you just discussed right now about um, chasing, um, chasing after pleasant feelings, um, in an example, hypothetically, if, if you were gifted something and the experience um, included excitement and pleasant feelings, you, you weren't necessarily chasing after that. And if, um, if your practice teaches you to not to cling on to any of the three poisons from that experience alone, would that excitement which you experienced generate fear if you were uh, practicing, um, you know, basically not attaching to the experience and experiencing the excitement itself. So the Buddha is not saying directly like, okay, if you allow the mind to experience excitement because you've got this gift, that now you're going to feel this fear necessarily on that same specific thing. He's not saying that necessarily, but what he's saying is if there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to arise these pleasant feelings and there's going to be fear. So let me give you an example using your example of a gift. 
So let's just say you got a gift and say it was like a really expensive gift, like a mobile phone or a GPS device or a car, for example. And you allowed these pleasant feelings to arise, this excitement, because your husband bought you a new car. And now there's going to be this fear that, oh, my goodness, I'm holding on to this car so tightly that now I'm fearful that someone's going to crash into it and it's not going to look as beautiful as it does right now because the mind is craving those pleasant feelings and holding on to those pleasant feelings of excitement. It's fearful because the mind is craving permanence. It wants this car to look this way permanently. And now that produces fear because it's holding on to this object of its desires so tightly. So that's an example of how a gift can lead to excitement and lead to fear, but it's not necessarily the case for each individual situation. So when you get the gift, what I would suggest that you do is like, oh, that's nice. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, husband, for buying me a new car. This was so lovely that you've chosen to do this for me. I appreciate this. I have gratitude, right? You can express these things. This was so kind of you, however you would like to express it. But when you allow the mind to arise, those pleasant feelings, oh, I'm so excited. Look at the new car. Ah, right. It's like that's when you're then those excited feelings are arising because of the craving desire attachment. And what happens later on when this car gets into an accident? Well, now the mind is painful because of we allow that excitement to happen on the front side. So when you see those arising pleasant feelings, that's what the Buddha is teaching to cut off and let go of through applying right effort. And then that allows you to not experience those painful feelings that you understand that when you get this gift, it is impermanent and it's not going to look this way permanently. Sure, I do understand what you're saying there. Um, if I may reference that um, the gifted item uh, was actually in, in this case, it was a uh, sort of a magic show, which was a two hour magic show that was gifted um, and um, as I as I accepted the gift, as I was sitting there in the audience, uh, you know, we experienced two hours of this show. So in that example, where this is not an identifiable object, but it's an experience, um, it was it was important for me to understand um, after that two hours was finished to not to cling on to. Um, that experience itself and receiving that experience. Um, I was grateful for the experience, but um, I tried to maintain a practice of um, not attaching to that experience. So in this case where clearly there was uh, excitement uh, and you know sitting there in the audience, uh, I'm trying to distinguish between um, you know, being um, receiving something as a gift of an experience and understanding where to be in the middle with that. Um, it, would it be that the end of that experience, uh, I sort of cut off the attachment to that? Is that how uh, the practice would be beneficial for me? The goal would be to not be attached to it to begin with. So then you're not having to eliminate it. But you may have gotten attached to it. So let me, using this improved information, let's say your husband gave you these tickets like a week beforehand, and then you got really excited about them. Okay, there's already craving desire attachment there. 
Maybe it's craving desire attachment to see the magic show. Maybe it's craving desire attachment to spend quality time with your husband and all of these things. Maybe it's a certain restaurant he's going to take you to before the show. Who knows, right? There's many different things that it could be there. Well, as long as we allow that to happen, then there's already craving desire attachment in the mind. And the goal would be to get ahead of this. And if he gave you this gift like a week beforehand, then this is where the fear comes in. That now if the mind's so excited about this event, then there's this fear that, oh, maybe we're not going to be able to go. Right. If if there's a flat tire or if there's a, some complication or if you're on your way there and there's a big traffic jam and you can't get to the destination, then there's this fear and the stress that the Buddha talks about that arises because of it. So what you'd like to do is not get attached and excited, experience the event. And then at the end of the event, that's where you let go of the attachment, because at that point it's already occurred. The attachment's already there that you've already experienced all that. What you would like to do is get ahead of the curve and that when the gift arrives, that you express your gratitude and your appreciation, but you don't allow the pleasant feelings to arise. Because if there's any impermanence along the way, that's where there's going to be these painful feelings arise if we allow the mind to experience these pleasant feelings. So cutting it off, if you observe any pleasant feelings arising, cut it off at the very beginning so that you don't set yourself up to fail. Over time, as the mind gets more and more trained, it won't have craving desire attachment. It'll just know when you get the gift. Oh, great. This is wonderful. Appreciate the gift. But early on and as you're making your way to enlightenment, you're going to have the arising of pleasant feelings because there is craving desire attachment there. But the more you train the mind to not do this, then it won't do it in the future. It'll just happen that you'll get the gift and you'll just appreciate the gift and you'll practice non-attachment. But because there is attachment there and you haven't fully trained the mind, you're going to experience these things. And where you observe mind with mindfulness, they're rising of pleasant feelings, cut it off and let it go. And then you won't set yourself up to fail. You'll set yourself up to succeed that you won't experience the painful feelings later because you never allowed craving, desire, attachment to become rooted in the mind on that particular issue. Okay, that was helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. One more question, teacher. All right, let's go to the next chapter. Chapter seven. Yeah, that's a good one. Mindfulness directed to the body, a strong post for mind. One dwells without having set up mindfulness of the body. Suppose, monks, a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey and tie each by strong rope. Having done so, he would tie the ropes together with a knot in the middle and release them. Then those six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in a direction on its own feeding ground and domain. The snake would pull one way thinking, let me enter an anthill. The crocodile would pull another way thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way thinking, let me fly into the sky. The dog would pull another way thinking, let me enter a village. The jackal will pull another way thinking, let me enter a charnel ground. The monkey would pull another way thinking, let me enter a forest. Now, when these six animals become worn and fatigued, they would be dominated by one among them that was strongest. They would submit to it and come under its control. 
So too, monks, when a monk has not developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye pulls in the direction of agreeable forms and disagreeable forms are repulsive. The ear pulls in the direction of agreeable sounds and disagreeable sounds are repulsive. The nose pulls in the direction of agreeable odors and disagreeable odors are repulsive. The tongue pulls in the direction of agreeable flavors and disagreeable flavors are repulsive. The body pulls in the direction of agreeable physical objects and disagreeable physical objects are repulsive. The mind pulls in the direction of agreeable mental objects and disagreeable mental objects are repulsive. It is in such a way that there is non-restraint. So here what the Buddha is describing is he's essentially everything else that we've been talking about this class, he's now using a simile, right? He's talking about how the mind being unrestrained that it's going to pull through these six sense bases. And it's like these six animals pulling in different directions and going in different directions. And this is what causes the mind to be discontent, is craving through the six sense bases. The mind's craving for all these pleasant feelings. And this is what he's describing here, that because there is no restraint of the mind and the mind is not cultivated and developed mindfulness, that's the reason why the mind is experiencing this discontentedness. There's these agreeable objects that create pleasant feelings. There's these disagreeable or these repulsive objects that causes painful feelings. So using Amina's example, the agreeable object is, oh, somebody put their trash in the right spot. There's those pleasant feelings. Or now this disagreeable or this repulsive thing happens. Somebody doesn't put the trash in the right location. Oh, now there's painful feelings. So here, this is where the mind is not restrained because it's pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. Now the Buddha is going to explain how to remedy this and how to fix it as part of your practice. In meditation, yes, we need to arise that mindfulness. Mindfulness is so key. Having awareness of mind and having awareness of the four foundations of mindfulness. But then in the moment, being aware of those arising bodily sensations and cutting them off and letting them go is like pulling these animals back on the rope and training the mind to submit to this training. And that's what he's going to talk about here with the restraint. One resides having set up mindfulness of the body. Suppose monks, a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would bind them to a strong post or pillar. Then those six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in the direction of its feeding ground and domain. The snake would pull one way thinking, let me enter an anthill. The crocodile would pull another way thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way thinking, let me fly into the sky. The dog would pull another way thinking, let me enter a village. The, da- the jackal would pull another way thinking, let me enter a charnel ground. The monkey would pull an- another way thinking, let me enter a forest. Now when these six animals become worn and fatigued, they would stand close to that poster pillar. They would sit down there, they would lie down there. So too monks, when a monk has developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye does not pull in the direction of agreeable forms, nor are disagreeable forms repulsive. The ear does not pull in the direction of agreeable sounds, nor are disagreeable sounds repulsive. 
The nose does not go in the direction of agreeable odors, nor are disagreeable odors repulsive. The tongue does not flow in the direction of agreeable flavors, nor are disagreeable flavors repulsive. The body does not flow in the direction of agreeable physical objects, nor are disagreeable physical objects repulsive. The mind does not flow in the direction of agreeable mental objects, nor are disagreeable mental objects repulsive. It is in such a way that there is restraint, a strong post or pillar. This, monks, is a designation for mindfulness direct, directed to the body. Therefore, monks, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. Okay, thank you, Manal. So this first one that Manal read, the Buddha is explaining this analogy or this simile where there's these six animals pulling in opposite directions, and there's this knot where in the middle they're all tied together, right? You know, having done so, he would tie the ropes together with a knot in the middle. And now these six animals are kind of roaming about, pulling in opposite directions, and there's no restraint, right? They're just all pulling in opposite directions. The mind isn't restrained. The animals are not restrained. But now he's talking about this mindfulness directed to the body, developing these four foundations of mindfulness and understanding that these bodily sensations are going to arise in the body before the pleasant feelings and before the painful feelings and before the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Tapping into those bodily sensations, now the practitioner can take active steps to then cut that off and let it go. This is how you get ahead of the curve that when you get those tickets to the magic show or you see that person put the trash away in the right location and you feel those bodily sensations starting to arise because there's some pleasant feelings the mind's getting ready to have because of the craving, desire, attachment in the mind. When you feel that little tingling or whatever it is of those bodily sensations of the pleasant feelings arising, you cut that off and let it go. And that's how you let go and eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the moment. Same thing with painful feelings. There's going to be some bodily sensation associated with sadness or anger or frustration and these other things. This is the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness, awareness of the bodily sensations. And when you're aware of these and you've developed this in meditation through breathing mindfulness meditation, and then you see it and observe it outside of meditation, the Buddha says this is like binding the animals to a strong pillar or post. There's now this stability in the mind that you're aware of these arising discontent feelings. And now when the animals pull in certain directions, instead of them just roaming about and being able to roam wherever they would like because they're unrestrained, now the mind is restrained with this strong pillar or post. And now you use those bodily sensations to be that strong pillar or post. And when you do, as you train the mind like this more and more, just like these animals become worn out and fatigued, the mind does the same thing. Because as the animals are pulling and pulling and pulling and they can't pull each other because they're attached to this post or pillar, they're going to get to the end of that rope and they're going to yank back and yank back and yank back. Eventually, the animal's going to get fatigued 
in, they're going to sit down there. They will lie down there, right? They're going to just become fatigued and stay right there. They're no longer going to pull in the direction of the objects of their affection. The unenlightened mind does the same thing. As it's pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection, with mindfulness directed at the body, you observe the arising pleasant feelings or the arising painful feelings or the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. You observe those bodily sensations and you yank the mind back. You cut those off and yank the mind back and yank it back and yank it back. And you do this repeatedly over and over and over again throughout your days, your weeks, your months. And over time, the mind gets fatigued that every time it pulls through the eyes, you yank it back. Every time it pulls through the ears or the nose, the tongue, the body or the mind as it's longing for these different objects, you observe that with mindfulness and you pull it back and the mind gets fatigued and eventually it just sits down there. It lies down there. It resides in the middle and it no longer pulls in the direction of the objects of its affection because you've trained the mind. Every time you pull, I'm going to pull you right back and the mind gets worn out and that's why it eventually just resides in the middle. This is why someone who's really deeply training their mind in meditation or outside of meditation can oftentimes become very tired and very fatigued because it's a lot of work when you're meditating and when you're applying this training it's a lot of work it's a lot of effort and that's why during meditation you're not just relaxing and zoning out you're applying the work that as the mind longs through these sense spaces you cut it off let it go and bring the mind back but the benefit of this is now the mind won't be repulsed by these disagreeable objects and it also won't arise these pleasant feelings by these agreeable objects because the mind will be restrained it has this restraint this discipline that you've applied to the mind you now have this discipline which is this strong pillar or post which is mindfulness directed at the body that's the restraint so as you observe these arising bodily sensations, cut off the discontentedness and bring the mind back to the middle. And that's why the Buddha says, okay, train yourselves, develop and cultivate mindfulness directed at the body, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus train yourselves. So you've got to get really, really good at observing those bodily sensations before any discontented feelings arises in the mind, there's going to be preceding these bodily sensations are going to be preceding that. And that's how you really get control over the mind and you discipline the mind and use that as your strong pillar or post. So what questions do you guys have here? Well, let's have the All right. Chapter eight. This particular chapter, I'm not sure who you have to read it, Bossom, but we've covered this one in other books. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody that needs to cover this one in this particular class, if you have any questions on it. Not seeing any questions for this one, teacher. Okay, the main thing that the Buddha is talking about here is this tortoise extends its limbs. And then when it sees that there's a jackal or some situation, it draws its limbs in. And that's how it protects itself. 
and essentially he says that we should do the same thing with the mind is draw in these six sense bases guard the six sense bases don't allow them to crave and long don't allow the mind to long through these six sense bases but instead restrain the mind and guard it through drawing in these limbs just like a tortoise would draw in its limbs in order to be protected from a jackal grabbing it and eating it so that's what that chapter is all about chapter nine is this simile of this bowl of oil which we also covered this one in a previous class as well and if anybody has any questions on this one i can take questions on this one essentially what the buddha is talking about here is that if somebody was to hold a ball of oil filled all the way up to the top and they were walking with a most beautiful girl of the land on one side who is singing and performing and on the other side is this crowd who's loud and obnoxious and cheering for this lady and you're walking down the middle of these two situations and there's somebody behind you with a sword that if any oil spills from that bowl that they're going to chop off your head the buddha is saying you know what would you do would you put mindfulness or awareness into carrying this bowl of oil and he's saying okay this is how you train the mind is that don't allow the mind to pull towards this most beautiful girl with the eyes or the ears because of her singing and also don't allow the mind to pull towards this crowd is stay in the middle stay focused and think about it as if that there's this person behind you that's going to cut off your head should you actually spill any oil so you can use this to your advantage while it's a pretty graphic depiction of a story the buddha does this in order to help you remember his stories if it was just kind of like a mediocre just kind of like a blase blase type of description of a, a story you know people probably wouldn't remember it but you give something really graphic like this and people have a tendency to remember it especially in an oral tradition so one of the ways that you can use this is if you notice that your mind is pulling towards the objects of its affection think about it as if somebody's going to chop off your head if that happens so using amina's example with the trash when you see somebody walking towards the trash receptacle and disposing their trash rather than allowing the eyes and the mind to pull towards that redirect the mind somewhere else because if you don't someone's going to chop off your head right you can think of it like that or if somebody doesn't put the trash or, and you see them walking towards the receptacle and you don't even know if they're going to put it in the right place or not don't even allow the mind to pull in that direction just cut that off let it go and take the mind in the opposite direction it doesn't concern you in terms of whether your mind should be content or not now if you need to follow that up with people in the neighborhood in terms of your association if you have a homeowners association or something we can always take action in the world in order to make things better but you have to be able to do that without craving desire attachment as long as there's craving desire attachment there it's going to motivate unskillful behavior so you've got to let go of the craving desire attachment first training the mind to be content no matter what somebody does with their trash and then once the mind no longer has craving desire attachment then you're in the best position to be able to make wise decisions towards resolving this challenge so if this image of somebody chopping off your head if you allow the mind to pull in the objects of its affection can really help 
in order to train the mind to let go of these things. So if there's any questions on this, I'd be pleased to take your questions on this. No question for the chapter teacher. All right. So let's go to the very last chapter for today, which is the solution to all of this. This is the main solution of everything we've been talking about today, which is elimination of this craving, desire, attachment. The things that I've talked about already are the solution of understanding those bodily sensations, cutting off any discontentedness when you observe the bodily sensations and so forth. But now this chapter is focused on the ongoing solution of breathing mindfulness meditation. And that's what's going to ultimately help arise this awareness of the bodily sensations because we're cultivating mindfulness here. And we've also read this chapter in other classes too. So I'm not sure if you guys have any questions on this chapter as a result of your study, but let's see what questions you guys may or may not have. Not seeing any questions, teacher. All right. So this chapter here is the breathing mindfulness meditation that the Buddha teaches in his guidance that he basically shares that you know, this is the way to cultivate the mind. This is the way to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and ultimately get to enlightenment. And he says here at the end, he says, when monks, mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation has been developed and cultivated in this way, one of two fruits may be predicted. Either final knowledge, which that's enlightenment in this very life, or if there is a residue of clinging, the state of non-returner. That's the third stage of enlightenment. And a person who's in the third stage of enlightenment will be reborn in heaven, and then they'll attain enlightenment from there in that very next rebirth. So this is the solution to eliminating craving, desire, attachment in the mind, along with practicing generosity. That's really important, Amina, is be sure that you're continuing to practice generosity in various ways. And then for all of us, you know, we need to be practicing generosity. Even a Buddha himself, who's already perfectly fully enlightened, they're going to be practicing generosity on a regular basis. What do you think he did with 45 years of his life? He helped other people for 45 years. Enormous practice of generosity, giving up any worldly pursuits that he might have had and instead invested his time, effort, energy, and resources into helping other people learn this path. So even a Buddha who's already fully perfectly enlightened is going to be practicing generosity. So that's very important to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and any selfishness where the mind wants to hold on to things. And it's breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, which is the generalized training that leads to the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, which leads to the elimination of discontentedness, which leads to the elimination of rebirth or existence in the cycle of rebirth. So all of these things are dependent on each other. And then when you have this mindfulness, this awareness of bodily sensations, you apply right effort in the moment that when you're observing the arising of bodily sensations, cut off and let go of anything that's arising in the mind and maintain that middle. Guard the sense bases and maintain that middle as if somebody's going to cut off your head if you don't maintain this middle way. Any questions on anything we covered in today's class? No question, teacher. All right. Well, 
it's been a wonderful discussion to share these teachings with you guys and kind of show you the connections and how the chapters are laid out within the book. And as you're reading, you might actually see some of these connections yourself. And the book is laid out in a particular way to gradually build your wisdom. Not only is the first book that I wrote, the volume one, laid out that way, but the other volumes are laid out that way too, where one chapter essentially leads to the next and helping you to build your wisdom so that you can then make wiser and wiser choices about your training. So remember that you, if you keep with that breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity on an ongoing basis, keep with the loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life, and arising this wisdom by learning and practicing in these classes, the condition of the mind is going to gradually improve, but it's going to take time. There's no quick fixes here. There's no immediate fix. It's not like taking a pill and 30 minutes later, your headache's gone. That's not the way discontentedness is eliminated. It's a gradual progression. So you're going to see this as you gradually progress on this path and more and more joy will come into the mind. More and more peacefulness will come into the mind because this discontentedness is gradually diminishing and extinguishing. So next week, we're going to be in the same book, but we're going to be in chapters 11 through 20. So you can read those chapters and come to class with any questions and we'll study them together as a group. Have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you in the next class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.